0: Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Sobolensky, and today I'm going to be talking about three of my favorite letters in the emergency department SVT. I'll use that term, SVT, but really what I'm going to be focusing on is the management of paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardia in your trauma bay or resuscitation area in the emergency department. So SVT is the most common rhythm disturbance in children. Supraventricular tachycardia is a rapid heart rhythm originating above the AV node, and there are multiple types. Classification really depends on the origin of the aberrant rhythm. And though there's tons of different kinds of supraventricular tachycardias, I'm just going to really talk briefly about AVRT and AVNRT, because those make up the majority of cases of SVT that you'll see in the pediatric ED. So AVRT is atrioventricular reentrant tachycardia. This is three-quarters of the paroxysmal SVT that you'll see in kids. This is an accessory pathway that lives outside of the AV node, and it connects the atria and ventricles. It's like an alternative access pathway. This includes Wolff-Parkinson-White pre-excitation, which conducts in an anterograde atrium-to-ventricle fashion. Then there's AVNRT, which is AV nodal reentrant tachycardia. This is about a quarter of paroxysmal SVT in kids. AVNRT has two pathways. One is fast, which has a short conduction time but a long refractory period, and one is slow, with a long conduction time but a short refractory period. They conduct in opposite directions and basically cause chaos. Now, SVT really is something that you should be suspicious of and recognize clinically. In infants, they can present with pallor, fussiness, irritability, poor feeding, and or cyanosis. Symptoms are subtle, and they can go unrecognized and can lead to heart failure because they can go on for a long time. Fever is a common precipitating event, which makes it really difficult to differentiate the infant who's tachycardic and septic versus the infant who is maybe tachycardic in SVT or tachycardic septic and in SVT. AV reentrant tachycardia is the most common, and it can actually go away on its own after one year of age. Now, typically in infants, you'll see a heart rate of 220 to 280 beats per minute, but it's always generally greater than 220. Older children and adolescents will have a heart rate of 180 to 240 beats per minute. They present with palpitations, chest discomfort, fatigue, and or lightheadedness. Syncope is actually quite rare as a presenting symptom in paroxysmal SVT, and it's definitely an ominous one. Sudden cardiac death from SVT is almost unheard of in structurally normal hearts. And SVT tends to persist as a chronic problem if it starts after age 3 to 5 years. The onset of most cases, at least in older children, of paroxysmal SVT is abrupt. It's paroxysmal, and most often it just happens when kids are resting. The duration of episodes is usually 10 to 15 minutes, but sometimes they can last an hour or more. Most children tolerate this very well and do not present in shock. When you look at the EKG in paroxysmal SVT, you'll see regular atrial and ventricular beats with 1-to-1 conduction you usually see a narrow QRS complex. But in antidromic AV reentrant tachycardia, you can see a wide QRS. But it's really weird to look at a kid with a wide QRS complex who's sitting there and smiling at you. So most of the cases you're going to see are narrow QRS complexes. The P waves may be absent or abnormal, and the heart rate doesn't vary much with activity. So you'll see a heart rate that really sits around that 220 to 230 with little variance. You can give a fluid bolus and maybe it'll decrease, you know, 10 beats per minute or so, but eventually it will go back up. In contrast, kids that have sinus tachycardia, that heart rate can be wildly variable depending on the stimuli that you're giving them. So this is the perhaps most important part of the presentation I wanna drill at home. The management of SVT depends on whether or not the child is stable. If the child is not stable, you need to proceed directly to cardioversion using sedation if possible. If the kid is stable, you start with vagal maneuvers. If they worked, well, great, cool, you're done. If they didn't, the first line management is adenosine, and I will talk about these more in detail coming up. If adenosine works, fantastic. If it doesn't, then you're going to have to use second line therapies, which include beta blockers or other agents, or cardioversion. And this should definitely be done with consultation with a pediatric cardiologist. So, getting ready to manage and convert SVT should really be an organized and thoughtful process. You should have a checklist available to help you get all of your items ready for SVT conversion. You'll obviously need adenosine and either a T piece or stopcock setup. We'll talk about those in a little bit. A CPR board, a defibrillator, and pads. An EKG machine set up to record with 12-lead or even preferably 15-lead with the right-sided leads. Appropriate monitors and a peripheral IV, ideally close to the heart. So what if you can't get that peripheral IV in the upper extremity? Well, any IV that's working well should work, especially in babies because they're smaller, if the adenosine is given and flushed properly. Can you give adenosine through an I.O.? Unsurprisingly, there's actually little literature, especially in humans. Now, Getchman, in the Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine back in 1994, when I was in high school, did a randomized control trial on newly weaned pigs, which I assure you were probably cute. So they put these pigs into SVT, and they assessed the minimum effective dose of adenosine necessary to induce AV block. They compared peripheral IV, central venous line, and I.O., and they actually noted that the I.O. dose was not statistically different from the central peripheral doses, but that's kind of all we have other than some case reports. There's one from Friedman in Annals of Emergency Medicine back in 1996, one case where I.O. adenosine actually worked in an infant, and then Goodman in Peds Emergency Care in 2012 had two cases where the I.O. adenosine did not work at all. All right, so in the stable patient, vagal maneuvers are your first line management. Garcon et al. from the Journal Pediatrics in 1981, when I was four years old, noted that 63%, admittedly 12 of their 19 patients of SVT cases that had Valsalva performed, converted. And then Muller et al. from the American Journal of Cardiology in 1994 saw that ice to the face terminated tachycardia in 9 of 46 episodes, or 20%. So Vagal maneuvers are surprisingly effective, and you should learn how to do a few different ones. Contraindications to vagal maneuvers are few, and most children won't have them, but they include aortic stenosis, a recent MI, glaucoma, or significant retinopathy. The major techniques include ice to the face, doing a rectal temperature, or a forced valsalva maneuver, asking a child to bear down or blow on an occluded straw or medication syringe you definitely want to record an EKG during the attempt to see what happens. Never do carotid massage or orbital pressure. So let's talk about ice to the face. So the technique is that you apply a bag filled with ice and cold water to the entire face. This means you cover the eyes, nose, and mouth for 15 to 30 seconds. This initiates the diving reflex, whereby the child's glottis closes, intrathoracic pressure increases, and then they valsalva, which can stimulate the vagus nerve and hopefully terminate the SVT. This can be successful in up to 30 to 60%. And then there is my favorite maneuver, perhaps in all of medicine, REVERT. So the REVERT, revert trial from Appleboom published in Lancet in 2015 was a randomized control trial of a maneuver that was 43% successful at terminating SVT versus 17% with a forced Valsalva alone. So here's a description of the maneuver. So while you're sitting at 45%, the patient does 15 seconds of forced expiration, and in the study, they use manometers to make sure that there was consistent force being generated, but in actual practice, you can use a 10 ml oral syringe, and you have to blow really hard, and not even the biggest windbag is going to be able to move that plunger. So again, while sitting at 45 degrees, the first step is 15 seconds of forced expiration into a 10 ml oral syringe. Immediately at the end of that strain, you lay the patient's head down and raise their legs to 45 degrees for 15 seconds. Then you return them to the sitting position for at least 45 seconds. So why does this work? All right, so the forced Valsalva maneuver, you're bearing down and you're raising intrathoracic pressure. To augment that, dropping the head and raising the legs, dumps extra blood into the thorax, further increasing intrathoracic pressure and exaggerating, hopefully, that vagal response that can assist in terminating the SVT. You have to have a child that's able to cooperate and do this, and I find that kids that are about six or seven and older are able to blow hard enough and long enough and understand what you're doing to get this to work. On my personal experience, I've converted several children with this maneuver, and it really feels good to be able to coordinate a team and to get a child out of SVT without having to do further interventions. All right, so if your vagal maneuvers don't work, you're going to have to go to adenosine. So adenosine is a medicine that interacts with A1 receptors and inhibits adenyl cyclase, and it reduces cyclic AMP, and that causes cell hyperpolarization by increasing inward flux of potassium, and then it inhibits calcium, and that's really confusing. So I tend to view adenosine in terms of what it does. So it slows the sinus rate. It increases AV node conduction delay, and it interrupts re-entered circuits, thereby breaking SVT. It is rapidly cleared from the circulation via cellular uptake, primarily by erythrocytes and the vascular endothelial cells. So that means its half-life is less than 10 seconds. It can terminate 80-90% to of AVRT and about 75% of other causes of paroxysmal SVT. It's the first-line medical treatment for SVT. The side effects resolve rapidly and do include flushing, nausea, vomiting, a vague feeling of discomfort or doom, chest pain, and dyspnea. It can rarely, I mean really rarely, precipitate AFib, and usually that self-resolves, and even even more rarely precipitate VTAC, apnea, or less than one minute of asystole, and you know, the latter was actually described in one case series only. So, it could also precipitate bronchospasm and asthma. This is actually really rare as well. That's maybe related to mast cell stimulation, but no one's quite sure. Contraindications to adenosine include patients that have had a heart transplant, those with second or third degree heart block, or those with significant sinus node disease. And I think you all know this one, but the doses are 0.1 milligram per kilogram, max of six. Dose two is 0.2 milligram per kilogram, max of 12. And dose three is 0.2 milligram per kilogram, max of 12. You have to wait at least two minutes between doses. When administering adenosine, you've got to get ready. Remember that pre-preparation, materials, and equipment. You have the 12-lead recording. The patient has defibrillator pads on. They have the EKG. You tell them what to expect. You give the drug, you've got to push it fast and flush it, and we'll talk about administration in a moment. Record the 12-lead and mark the administration time, either electronically on the machine or as the paper comes out of the EKG recorder. And note that it might not be instantaneous that a patient's going to convert. So you've got to monitor them for stability and review the EKG and know that it can take several seconds. Remember, push the adenosine fast, ideally followed by a 10 ml flush. If you give it in bigger kids and adults, elevate that extremity for about 10 to 20 seconds after the normal saline flush. There's a couple different ways that you can actually set up and give adenosine. One is with a stopcock, and the other is a device called a T-piece. And I'll include in short term some videos on the blog. But ultimately, neither of these is necessarily better because they haven't been compared, and both are good ways to give the adenosine as long as you know how to do it and what you're doing. And you want to make sure that you push the adenosine first, followed quickly by the flush. So can you actually mix the adenosine with the flush and skip this whole push the adenosine, then push the flush separately? Well, it is stable and compatible with normal saline, even up to the 12 milligram dose. And the suggested technique, according to Tricks of the Trade from Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, is you drop the adenosine and normal saline in the same 20 ml syringe and administer it via fast IV push. Uh, Per Gauche in um, Annals of Emergency Medicine, flush volume as low as 5 mLs have worked. There was one unblinded uh, randomized control trial out of Korea that showed no difference in the separate flush versus the mix. So though your institution may do adenosine followed by a flush, you really want to make sure that you clarify adenosine, how it's mixed up in different doses, and what's the best practice for where you work. So for instance, where I work, very small doses of adenosine are actually combined with the flush, but larger doses, so for kids older than a year or so, are given separately. And the nurse decides whether or not to use the T-piece or the stopcock, but our heart doctors prefer to use the stopcock because they feel that it's more foolproof. And one final thing about adenosine. So that post-adenosine tracing is incredibly valuable. And I know I said it before, but you want to record the EKG before you give adenosine, mark when it was given, and then record afterwards. So often, quote unquote, didn't respond, you know, is this brief AV block, and you've got this period of what looks like a systole, and ultimately what happens in that interval and then afterwards can be really useful for the pediatric cardiologists. And so if you see this period of a systole or flat line, and then SVT doesn't convert. Well, that means the adenosine actually did something. It means it worked on the patient from a certain perspective. It just didn't convert the SVT. So if you see that flat line, and then the patient's still in SVT, especially with that first 0.2 milligram per kilogram dose. Well, it's probably not going to work if you repeat a second 0.2 milligram per kilogram dose. So my practice is try 0.1 mg per kg. If that doesn't work, try 0.2 mg per kg. And if that doesn't work, I call cardiology. Now, there are some other medications that are used in the conversion of SVT, but these are generally second line after adenosine. So beta blockers. and These are for patients who don't respond to adenosine and are hemodynamically stable you've got IV esmolol loading dose of 100 to 500 mics per kilo over one minute, followed by an effusion of 25 to 100 mics per kilo per minute, or oral propranolol at 0.5 mg per kg as a single oral dose. So if the patient does not self-convert in an hour, repeat dosing with adenosine can be attempted, or you can do more beta blockers. Now remember, kids that are in SVT, especially for a while, have very high sympathetic tone. So some sedation on the light side, is often used as well. Benzodiazepines have a real role here. Some other medicines used in the conversion of SVT, more rarely used, um, especially by cardiologists, and in my opinion, don't really have a role for the management of paroxysmal SVT in the pediatric ED include procainamide, which is a class 1A antiarrhythmic that slows atrial conduction instead of blocking reentry at the AV node like adenosine. You've got amiodarone, which is a class 3 antiarrhythmic that prolongs the refractory period of the AV node. And then you have verapamil, which is a higher class drug and warrants a lot more experience. It slows AV node conduction with a longer duration of action than adenosine, but it can also cause apnea, bradycardia, and hypotension. Especially in infants, all of those are bad. So again, I, I mentioned the generally stable patients that are refractory to adenosine are routinely medically cardioverted. And if you're not going to medically cardiovert somebody, you can do it electrically. And this is the first-line treatment for the unstable patient, or it can be done in the patient who is refractory to adenosine and other medications. Again, the unstable patient needs electrical cardioversion now. Have that defibrillator in sync mode, have a working IV, all of your supplies and materials ready, and if you've got time and the patient is anxious, use sedation, and I would recommend a benzodiazepine like midazolam. The first dose is 0.5 to 1 joules per kilo, and if that's ineffective, convert to 2 joules per kilo. Any patient who is electrically cardioverted definitely needs to stay in the hospital. But, conversely, If a child is stable and you convert them with vagal maneuvers or with adenosine, accounting for local practice, of course, they can be observed in the emergency department for an hour or two and discharged home, provided that parents understand how to count pulses and recognize further symptoms, and a mechanism is in place to arrange for follow-up with a pediatric cardiologist. All right, so in summary, SVT is the most common rhythm disturbance in children. Vagal maneuvers can be effective if you perform them correctly. Adenosine is the first-line medical treatment for SVT and is very effective. Patients refractory to adenosine are generally treated with other agents, including beta-blockers or elective cardioversion. The unstable patient should undergo electrical cardioversion immediately. And when converting SVT, preparation is key have everything ready, and be organized. Make sure that you have an algorithm or a checklist on hand before you start. That way you can be streamlined, efficient, get the job done, and record valuable information that can help with diagnosis and future management. All right, well that's all I've got for SVT, specifically paroxysmal SVT management in your trauma bay or resuscitation area. As always, you can check out more educational materials on PEMblog.com, subscribe to old episodes wherever you get your podcasts, follow me on Twitter at PEMtweets, and leave a review if you can. I would really appreciate the feedback. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been your host, Brad Soboleski. See you next time.